we're journeying through 1 Samuel. We, this is our um, fifth week in 1 Samuel. Last week we had a guest speaker, um, Nathan Forbes, who came and brought a, a great word from 1 Samuel 4 through chapter 7. He covered a lot of ground and he just told us the story of the ark and even finished early, like 30 minutes, right? <laughs> the, uh, those who were working with the kids across the hall there were like, is the service already already over? They were surprised. Um, so I'm not going to preach 30 minutes this morning, but I will aim to get you out of here before uh, 12 o'clock. Um, so <clears throat> the title of this message is Return to God. We have seen in the book of 1 Samuel that Israel got themselves in trouble. And we see the cycle that continues to happen that we see in the book of Judges, right? Um, Israel turns from God. They do their own thing. They worship other gods. And then they experience the pain of some poor, sinful choices. And they cry out to God in their desperation. And God mercifully and graciously responds to their cries and shows up and he delivers them. And so uh, we get a positive story this week. So there's there's kind of this cycle of this negative bad story where Israel strays and God brings discipline or judgment. And then we see God's deliverance when they cry out and turn back to God. And so we get a a positive story this week of, of what God does on their behalf. So in chapters 4 through 7, or 4 through 6, we, we got the story of the ark, and the Israelites just thought that they could use the ark of the covenant, God's piece of furniture, they thought they could use it as a lucky charm to kind of help them win the battle. They thought that they could use this, this, this item impersonally, and expect that it would kind of give them some luck or favor and, and, and turn the battle towards victory for them and they saw that you can't manipulate God and use him like a vending machine and approach God with on your own terms and worship God in your own terms they realized that God's not a vending machine or we we realize it from the story that God's not going to be objectified like that and allow he is a personal holy God in which he calls us to relationship with himself that we might know him and so Samuel we see in in this chapter in first Samuel chapter 7 we see Samuel's godly leadership as a prophet as a judge he was an answer to the prayer of Hannah for a son she was barren and couldn't have children and he came as an answer to the spiritual barrenness of Israel in some really dark days, in a time when the word of the Lord was rare. God raised up a Samuel. He answered the prayer of Hannah. He answered the cry of his people to, to give them some godly leadership and bring the word of the Lord to the people of Israel that they might know God and walk in his way. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Let me pray. Father, as we open the pages of Scripture, 
Would you open the eyes of our hearts? Help us to perceive and understand what your word says, what your word means, and give us the ability to apply it effectively to our lives and obey what you're telling us today. That we too might see victory in our lives. That you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. Would you do that here through the preaching of your word? Would you break bondage? Free your people? Would you heal broken hearts? Would you stir faith and strengthen faith in the hearts of your people? That we would walk with you and trust you as the Lord who rescues and helps us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kerath Jerium came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadad on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to charge the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kerath Jerium, A long time passed, some 20 years, and all of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mishpah. Now, when the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines, I'm sorry, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. 
So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron and Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel there in these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So here's our big idea from this text this morning. God calls his people to return to him. To rely on him so that he might be glorified in fighting for them and delivering them. God calls his people to return to him and rely on him so that he might be glorified in fighting for them and delivering them. The first thing I want us to see is how Samuel led Israel in repentance. He led Israel in repentance to turn from their false gods and to return to the one true God. He called them into reality, into true worship of the one true God instead of trying to to add these other gods that were accumulated from the nations to, to, to their God and the worship of their God. When I did a mission trip in India, I, I was... Um, intrigued by all the idols in the land. And when I was riding in a rickshaw, I remember seeing just a couple different um, little little um, statues on the front dashboard. And there was, you know, and, and amongst the, the other false gods, there was a, a, a Jesus statue there or an emblem that was supposed to represent Jesus. And as I was talking to, witnessing to the taxi driver, he said, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And in his mind, he's just like, add him in to, to, the, to the other thousands of gods that we worship, right? As, as, you, as if you just want to cover all the bases and make sure you got all the bases covered so you'll be all right if you get in trouble, right? And so this was the mindset. This, and, and this is the mindset many pagan, uh, with much pagan worship, right? They would turn to these gods for help and Israel or Samuel was calling Israel to return to the Lord and him only for their help. He said, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and the Astroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, And so what we see here in this story is that repentance preceded victory. Repentance preceded victory over the Israelites' enemies. Samuel told them, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away these foreign gods. That's, that's, he's calling them to repentance here. And he says, he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Samuel's promising this, and he had some biblical basis to promise 
the Israelites of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God listed all the blessings and all the curses that would come upon the Israelites if they were to obey God, much blessing. And if they were to disobey God, there would be many curses. And one of those blessings is victory that he describes. In, in Deuteronomy 28, he's, Moses says that the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. So there's this promised victory. Now, notice the contrast. They do experience victory, but notice the contrast to the defeat that they experienced in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Notice in, in chapter 4, of when Eli was still in leadership, it says that when when uh, they said, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here to Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Notice the impersonal language there. It. Bring that Ark, that furniture thing. You know, it had the tablets in it. It had the rod of Aaron with the bud and it had some, some manna in it, Right? And so it was a symbolic reminder of the presence of God, but it wasn't some lucky rabbit's foot that was going to deliver the Israelites. Samuel was calling his people, the people of God, to repent of their superstitious, idolatrous worship. Yeah. All right? I remember as a, as a young Catholic boy, and I wasn't walking with the Lord, but I had some Catholic religion. And I remember as I would drive by a Catholic church listening to my rap music, gangster rap music, and smoking pot and going to get in trouble and doing the things that I was doing, I would turn down the radio and I would do one of these. And I had this, this, you know, this, this thing in my mind that if I would just kind of honor God in this way, you know, give him a token prayer here and there, maybe visit church on Easter and Christmas, I'd be all right. I was operating more out of superstition, treating God more as a vending machine rather than having a personal relationship with the living God that brings about transformation in your life when you really know Him. There's too many people that settle for dead religion, ritual, just going through emotions and superstitious ways of, if, if we'll just do this, you know, maybe God will be kind to us. But God calls us to true worship. God calls his people to trust him and to pray to him, to express our faith to him in prayer. And Samuel was calling the, the Israelites to that. Now notice the contrast here in chapter 7. Now th this confirms that there was repentance taking place. That repentance took place. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. Yahweh Elohim. The personal name of God. They're getting more personal here. Not, not hey, bring that ark in, it in, so it will deliver us. There's a contrast here. They're, they're saying, hey, Samuel, call out to the Lord our God. Call on his name for us. Now, it probably would have been even better if they would have did that, right? If they would have offered up their prayers to the Lord our God who delivers us because God hears the prayers of his people. 
But God raised up Samuel, this prophet, who would mediate and lead and, and speak and represent the word of the Lord, uh, speak the word of the Lord, represent God to the people. And notice uh, in, in chapter 17, when David comes onto the scene and he faces that great Philistine, the giant Goliath, remember what he said to him in, in 1 Samuel 17, I think 3, he says, you come against me with spear and javelin, javelin but I come against you in what? In the name of the Lord. Right? So David, and we'll see this later on, Lord willing, David was trusting in Yahweh, the one true God. Not it as the ark to save him. Not objectifying God and using him as like a vending machine, but trusting the living God. And so, so the Israelites were saying, hey, Samuel, do this for us. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They didn't, they didn't, in this, in this moment of pressure as they were gathered, they didn't go back to trust in the false gods. They're, they're turning and trusting in God to deliver them as the Philistines are coming upon them. Now, they've already had some beatdowns by the Philistines. And their confidence, I'm sure, was, was broken. Right there's a sore spot. Right when you when you get in a couple fights and you lose, you know you just kind of you're kind of sore. Right, and it, you you may lose your confidence, but they were putting their confidence in God, and they asked Samuel to cry out to the Lord. Now notice that their repentance was accompanied by change. Now first of all, there was lament, there was mourning. Okay, there there was a period of of twenty years that. That passed, uh, as we, we see in the, the first part of uh, chapter 7. And they were lamenting to the Lord. They felt sorry. They felt the consequences of their sinful choices. You see, this is the first step, I think, in repentance. That we feel what Paul calls a godly sorrow that produces repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Versus a worldly sorrow that produces death. Like, yeah, we should feel sorry when we sin against God and we, we, we hurt other people because of our selfish decisions. We should feel sorry, right? But there's a godly sorrow that God wants us to have that produces a repentance. And it's a sorrow that's based on the damaged relationship. The, the, the reality that we have affected the relationship here with God... And we hear with others. And so we feel sorry for, uh, we are to feel sorry and repentance and express that. But it doesn't just stay there in the emotional realm. True repentance does not stop at the emotional realm. I'm sorry. Okay, those of us who are parents know as we try to walk our children through repentance that oftentimes I'm sorry isn't enough. We, we want to we probe and say, well, what are you sorry for, right? We want to help walk them through a, a biblical confession. Let's talk about it, right? And, and shepherd their hearts. It also says in verse 6, the first half of 6, that they poured out water. So I, I don't understand exactly what this is, but the commentators point to um, a couple of other verses that, that liken it to the pouring out of the heart, a symbolic act that went together with fasting. Where they, they poured out water, they poured out their hearts like water 
to the Lord. Lamentations has a similar reference to it written later on. And so they, they turned to God. That re, The repentance was accompanied by lament, pouring out of water, fasting. By the way, I'm not suggesting that we need to start pouring out water when we're repenting. Um, or calling others to repent, you know. <laughs> Dump water on them. Um, it, it might work. It might get their attention. No. Um, but it was accompanied by confession as well. They confessed their sins to the Lord. And they said, what did they say? Not just that we have sinned, they said we have sinned against the Lord. See, that's what true repentance looks like. It, it involves us recognizing that we have offended a holy God. In Psalm 51, when David modeled for us repentance, true repentance after sinning significantly with adultery and murder, trying to cover up his sin... He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Notice that Samuel says there's both negative and positive aspects connected to this repentance that are accompanied by and involved with this repentance. There's this putting away of the, fo- the foreign gods, the false gods that, that don't lead the people of God into reality, into truth. They deceive. They don't deliver because of false gods. And then there's the positive side. Now, a lot of times when, when we hear the word repentance or when others hear repentance, a lot of times we, we, we think of repentance as a negative, like kind of a you know street preacher kind of word. Repent. Right? Jesus preached repentance. Right? John the Baptist preached repentance. The Apostle Paul preached repentance. And, and though we don't see the specific word repentance here in the text, we see the content of repentance and the call to put away the false gods, the foreign gods, and to direct your heart to the Lord, to serve Him. Repentance has both the, the turning away from and the turning to God. I was having, my, my son and I were having some father-son Bible study yesterday. And I was explaining to him the concept of repentance. And I had him turn to Luke chapter 15, the story of the, the prodigal son. And as we were turning to Luke chapter 15, he's like, oh, I know that. I know that story. And he starts telling me the story. And he does a great job telling the story of the prodigal son, right? He, I hear it, I affirm, yeah, that's good. And then I, I told him, I said, you know, it's important, Carson, to that, that knowing what the story says, it's important to note, to note that knowing what the story says does not equal knowing what the story means. And I want you, son, to not only know what the stories of the Bible say, but I want you to know what it means. And so I asked him, I said, well, can you, can you explain to me what the story means? And so he kind of paused for a moment. And then he kind of, he got this big smile on his face to confirm that what the point I was trying to make was true. And he's like, oh, hold on, hold on for a second. And then he's thinking about it. He took a minute to think about the story of the prodigal son. And he said, I think it means that no matter what we do, God will always love us, right? 
And I, and I affirmed what he said was, was good and true, and the, the story does teach the heart of the father in the prodigal son story, right? But there's more to that story, right? There's, yes, and that is a huge component, a big emphasis, but repentance is also, and I reminded him, what are we talking about right now? He said, repent, and he got this big smile and he kind of laughed, repentance, oh, I get it, he repented, right? He came to, he came to his senses, and he realized the poor decisions that he made, and he was just longing to have some of the pig's food, and he's like, man, I can go back to my dad, I don't have to stay here. And that's what he did. He came to his senses, he went back, and, and the father threw a great party. And then I explained to my son a little bit more about the meaning of that parable that that older brother who wasn't rejoicing in the party, he was like the Pharisees who were not excited about the tax collectors and the sinners who were coming to Jesus and repenting. And Jesus is like, hey, heaven's throwing a party, guys, and you guys aren't joining in, right? And, and, and so I just got to explain to him my heart as a parent, I want him to not just know the stories of the Bible, I want him to know the meaning behind the stories. And I don't want him just to know the stories and know the meaning and be able to teach others I, while I want that. Even more so, I want him to apply and obey what he does know. God forbid that we should be those who just know the stories of the Bible or, or know, know the stories of the Bible, know the meaning of the Bible and don't apply it. God forbid that we should be hearers only and deceive ourselves, as James 1 tells us. Right? And so, in this text, we see a story of repentance. And we would do well to follow the example. While it, this is a descriptive story, we have plenty of prescriptive text that call us to repent of our sins as well, of our idolatry, of our deceit, of our selfishness and sinfulness. And so that's a great application here as we look at this story. Now notice this as well, that Samuel interceded for Israel. We see godly leadership. Samuel not only instructed Israel in righteousness, calling them to repent and calling them to follow what God's word says, and not only equipped them with the truth of Scripture, taught them, as it says back in chapter 3 and 4, that Samuel's word went out to all of Israel. God, God was giving revelation of, of his word, of himself, and of his, his will revealed through the prophet Samuel. And he not only gave instruction to Israel, he not only preached to them, but he prayed for them. And this is what godly leaders do. They don't just preach and they don't just teach. They pray. Jesus did this. Paul did this. We're called to do this as well, in a sense. But notice this. He said, the people, uh, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered. Israel needed a mediator. Israel needed an intercessor. Israel needed an atoning sacrifice for the rebellion. 
And God raised up a Samuel to fill that spot. And we have one that's even greater than Samuel. We have Christ as our great high priest, as our intercessor. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When's the last time you reflected on the reality that Christ is praying for you, interceding on your behalf? What a delightful thought that should infuse us with confidence, comfort us in our trouble. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The great prayer in John chapter 17. Did you know that you're included in that, saints? Do you know that Jesus prayed for you in John 17? He prayed not only, not only for the disciples whom the Father had given him in this world, but those who would believe through their testimony, through their witness. Christ has prayed for us, and he is interceding for us, and he has us in the grip of his grace, and this should fuel confidence in our lives. Christ has become the atoning sacrifice. Pastors and priests don't have to go back to the old Levitical system of offering up animal sacrifices to cover sins and guilt, to address the problem. The book of Hebrews makes this point very clear and long. It makes it very clear that all these sacrifices are point to the substance of Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The once and for all sacrifice. And so Hebrews 10 tells us that, that Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest and that he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is one of the differences between Christianity and other religions. We're not trying to sacrifice to God to appease His wrath and earn our salvation because we can't. None of us can provide the sinless, flawless, perfect sacrifice. And it's already been made for us. It's already been done. Hebrews 10 says that every priest stands daily at, the, at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, a single sacrifice, he said, it is finished, it's done. His sacrifice was sufficient to take away our sins. So we don't have to keep striving and trying to earn God's favor and work our way to heaven. God has come down to us. The Son has come into the world to save sinners, and we can't save ourselves. We need Jesus, the great intercessor, the atoning sacrifice. He has offered once and for all the single sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemy shall be made his footstool. 
for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here is some gospel truth, saints, that should encourage us. And we look at this because we see Samuel offering this sacrifice. We see him interceding. And as I've said, that the Old Testament points us forward to King Jesus. Israel was in search for a king, a leader, someone who would lead them into victory. And God was going, and God raised up a Samuel, and God was going to raise up a David. But even beyond that, there was one even greater who's coming. And so the next thing we want to see here in this story is that God fought for Israel. The repentance preceded the victory. Repentance and renewal of commitment preceded the victory. It says, and Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered. Thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I love this. Now, there's a number of stories in the Bible where something like this happens. Where Israel turns to God. Second um, Chronicles 20 is another one with Jehoshaphat. Send out the worship team first, which that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? Send the worship team out first on the front lines. Let them get killed first, right? Worshiping the Lord, right? We'll try that next next fight, Kevin. Uh, and God fought for them, right? We see God as the hero. God is the victor. God is the one bringing the rescue to his people. And the people of God looking to him, crying out to him. Is that the Lord thundered. So it's supposedly that Baal, Baal was supposed to be like the, the God over the storms. And here's an assault on, on Baal worshipers and Baal himself. I love like in Exodus when God brought the ten plagues upon Egypt. Each one of those were a direct confront, confrontation to the false gods of the Egyptians. God is jealous. For the glory of his name. And for his people. For the hearts of his people. And we see God fighting for his people here. That's amazing. This should encourage us. That God fought for Israel. And that he fights for his church. Jesus came and he did battle. Against sin and Satan. Death and hell. And brought the kingdom of God to earth and brought us into his reign, into his kingdom, a part of his kingdom, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness. He's fought for us. But Israel still had to take some action, right? Israel did have to, did have to fight. God was calling. They, they, had, they had land that they were going to possess. They still had to march forward. Right? To possess the land. They still had to take action to, to be responsible to do what God told them to do. But ultimately, the scripture points to, to God being the one who gives the victory. Right? The, the war horse is prepared for battle. Proverbs tells us, but victory comes from the Lord. So may we put our trust not in military might... And great military leaders 
or business leaders or political leaders or even spiritual leaders. Ultimately, we need to be looking to God for the victory. And He will fight for us. Now, Hannah's prophetic prayer alluded to this here in 1 Samuel 2.10. She prayed this at the end of her prayer. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them He will thunder. Lightning. Sorry. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, notice that there was not a king yet in Israel, right? Saul ended up becoming the first king, right? And then David would come, right? And this was, this was uh, pointing us forward to giving an anticipation that there would be a king, that would be raised up and that the Lord would, would, would fight for his people. And there was, there was a thunder here with, with, with under um, Samuel's leadership. And then, and then we see God working through the leadership of David and God bringing victory to the Israelites through King David. And Israel seemed to do really well underneath his leadership. But even further beyond that, there was Jesus. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about mountain mountain range and looking at mountains like Mount Everest here, right? And how a lot of times in prophecy, like there's a, there's a fulfillment, there's a, a greater fulfillment, right? And Jesus is the greater David or the greater prophet, right? The greater Moses, the greater Samuel, the, the great intercessor. And we look forward to to. Israel was to look forward to, to the Messiah who would come. Now, we, we look back as believers. Christ has come, and he has brought the victory. He has won. There's a new song out that Shane and Shane wrote. I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. Don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. So as believers, we look back to the victory that Christ has brought brought to us, for us, and we stand in that victory and we fight from that place of victory. we're, We're to be, as Paul says, strong in the Lord. And the power of his might. Now notice also that Samuel led Israel to remember. Not just to repentance. But he led them to remember. Remembrance is important for ongoing sustained repentance. Because what happens when the people of God forget the Lord? What happens when we forget the Lord? We stray. We stray. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We stray. We're, our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to forget. We're prone to what, what one author calls spiritual amnesia. We forget the great things that the Lord has done. And so Israel, or, or Samuel, led Israel to remember. And how did he do that? He set up a monument. Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it 
calls its name, calls its name Ebenezer. I asked Kevin to sing uh, Come Thou Fount this morning because of these words. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Now, many people don't know what they're saying when, they, when they're singing that. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Who's Ebenezer anyways? Right? <laughs> Ebenezer, right? We, sing. we need to think about what we're singing when we worship God. If you're singing something that you don't know what you're saying, like dig into it, ask some questions. God wants his people to worship in spirit and in truth, right? He wants us to worship accurately, accurately, spirit and in truth, and affectionately as well from the inside out. So, so this is where we get this concept of Ebenezer. It's a great name. Eben, you know, Ebenezer. Um, I feel like there's some, anyways, okay, I'm, I'm getting distracted here. Um, <laughs> So, so he leads them to remember, okay? He leads, the, he leads them to remember by, by this, uh, setting up this monument. It's a stone, and, and, and he, it, the, the story is explained here. It says, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. The word, the name Ebenezer means stone of help, okay? So the monument was there to simply remind the Israelites... Until now, the Lord has helped us. Which points back in the past, till, until now, God has helped Israel. And back to the Exodus, God helped Israel. God fought for Israel, right, for his people. And then he did the same here. And this is this reminder of this victory. Now, I'm sure we all have some Ebenezers in our lives, monuments, things that help us remember special moments where God has showed up in our lives. I mean, what are the Ebenezers that you have? Or, you know, maybe it's a song that, that reminds you of a season in your life where God came through for you. In our day, maybe it's a tattoo that you got as a reminder <laughs> of God coming through for you. All right? Maybe it's like a staff. You got this, this staff, you know, or whatever, whatever the, the physical thing. There's just a physical reminder or, or some kind of like reminder that helps you remember God has been faithful to me in this season of my life. Maybe you went through, uh, you know, uh, some kind of sickness and you have like, or a bandage or a, an old cast. You got a broken leg or whatever. It's just a reminder. Like I went through a hard time here and God brought me through. God helped. God helped me. Helped us. Helped our family. Helped our church. And so we need all the help we can get re remembering that God is our helper. One commentator says this about the Lord helping them, the Israelites. He said, even amid the desolation of Shiloh, that's where they got defeated, the Lord was helping them. He was helping them to know themselves, helping them to know their sins, helping them to know the bitter fruit and woeful punishment of sin. Right Now Israel concluded in their times of defeat, God hates us. God's trying to destroy us. He brought us out of Egypt so that he can just take wipe us out. They misskewed his heart. They misunderstood the heart of God. Often strayed from his ways. And God is committed to helping us. And sometimes that help stings. Because we need some discipline. We need some pain. 
to teach us because we're not paying attention. And I, I think it's important to cling to what we sing about today, the goodness of God in the midst of the sting of life and the painful circumstances that we find ourselves in. God is for us. He's fighting for us. He's committed to helping us and bringing about His good plan for us. One of the, the weekly reminders that we have as, as a church that Jesus Himself, the greater Samuel, instituted as a monument or as a continual memorial is the Lord's Supper. And we do this every week here at City Church because Jesus instructed His followers to remember Him in this act. And we need all the help we can get remembering God's help for us. He's brought us the help that we need in Christ. And sometimes we forget and sometimes we don't recognize it. And sometimes we don't go to Him who is the source, our greatest help. And just simply ask, Lord, help me. And, and the body of Christ who He's placed around us. We're to live interdependently, not independently or codependently. We're to live interdependently in the body of Christ and we help one another. We serve one another. And God works through His people who have His Spirit, the Helper, inside. God is our help. And, and the cross is the biggest statement that we have that God has brought the greatest help that we need, the greatest rescue that you and I need in Christ coming to offer His life as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And I can't think of a better verse to illustrate the Ebenezer that we have as Christians. Romans eight thirty two, He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so as believers, we look back to the greatest demonstration of rescue that the love of God put on display for us, the righteousness and the justice of God being satisfied in the death of the sinless Son of God on behalf of our sins to rescue us from everlasting punishment. God didn't spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. And so we look back, and then when we look forward, we, can, we could and should look forward with great confidence that there is unending goodness coming our way for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. We have a greater Ebenezer, saints. And this ought to inflame our hearts to worship God, to, to, to sing to Him and to thank Him, and to tell others about Him. Especially in this Easter season, when we remember the resurrection, that Christ not only, not only went to the cross and the grave for us, but that He was raised from the dead on the third day. Let's make it our aim these weeks to come to share that good news with others who need the hope. Lastly, let me highlight Samuel's leadership in that he judged Israel. It says this uh, at least three times here, that he judged Israel. And this wasn't like a, a condemning judge, like thou shalt, you shall not judge. This was a godly leadership giving justice and, and helping lead Israel in what's just and what's right. 
It says that he judged Israel all the days of his life. And then down, uh, he judged Israel and he built an altar there. He judged Israel in all these places. And so we see God raised up a judge. And, and, and next week, Lord willing, we're going to see that, that the, the, it transfers. There's going to be a transfer from a theocracy to a monarch, monarch where, where there's a king is going to be given. All right? And we'll, we'll talk about And I think, think it'll, it'll go well with Palm Sunday as we think about King Jesus, the greater king, the greatest king who ever came. The one that we want to reign over our lives, in our lives. And so let me close with a couple points of application here. First of all, know that your spiritual, know that your spiritual battles are to be preceded. Know that spiritual battles, sorry, that's a terrible sentence. Know that your spiritual battles are to be preceded. That repentance and reliance upon the Lord will, know that in your spiritual battles, that repentance and reliance upon the Lord will precede victory. In your spiritual battles, know that repentance and reliance upon the Lord will precede victory. God's not wanting us to be impersonal and use Him as a vending machine. Right? we got to return to the Lord. Right? We can't just go to him as like a sugar daddy when we need him to help us, and then we don't we don't want any, we don't want anything we don't want a relationship with him when we're not sensing our great need, right? A lot of people treat God like that, right? And we don't want to. God calls us to an intimate relationship with Him. James four highlights this reality. It says, "Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God." Right? There's, again, that personal, relational aspect. Draw near, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Be double-minded. This is a, a way of describing repentance. Now, in verse 6, y'all know what James 4, 6 says? God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Right? And so I think there's a, a lot of times people, uh, I've heard people, I think a lot of times in spiritual warfare, we think that it's just the devil and just the demons. But when we're walking in pride, and we're trying to fight the battle ourselves, and we're not walking upright before God, it may be God's hand that is resisting us. And we may need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that He may, in due time, exalt us. And so this is what we're called to as believers, to submit to God. This is a, a military term, like to, to get in line with God, to line up with His will and His way for our lives. So if we're going to experience victory in the battle, this is important, necessary. Be comforted and confident in the intercession that Christ makes on your behalf. He's praying for you right now. Christ is interceding for you. Ralph Davis says that the true secret of our steadfast, the true secret of our steadfastness is we rely on the prayers of another whose prayers are always effectual. Nothing else is quite so moving as knowing that I am a subject of Jesus' intercessory prayer. Anybody else say amen to that? 
Next, confidently bring your request to God in prayer and intercede for others. Christ is interceding for us. And we now have access. It's not just the Samuels. It's not just the priests or the pastors who have access to God, to commune with God, to know Him intimately. But we all, as all of us as believers, have access to the throne of grace. All of us as believers have been given the priesthood. The Bible calls Christians priests, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. What if we got a hold of this? What if the church got a hold of this and we stopped just pushing off ministry, prayer ministry, evangelism ministry, preaching and teaching ministry? Stop pushing it off onto the professionals or the paid staff to do it. And maybe we took ownership as the church and realized that we are called a kingdom of priests. We are called to be ministers. The, the, the leaders in the church are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I think we would see some revival happening if the church got this, what the reformers call the priesthood of all believers. We have access to the throne of grace. And let me just, let me highlight a couple of examples here. here here's a guy in a Colossians 4 who interceded on behalf of others. My landing, my, my closing is going like this, I'm sorry. Um, intercession ex, ex, exemplified. So Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. Anybody know who Epaphras is? Right? He's not like a Paul or Barnabas. or He's not somebody that stands out. We're not as familiar with this guy. Right? But Paul acknowledges him and he says, Who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus? He's a minister. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That's intercession right there. That's a commitment right there. That's a godly man who's making disciples, not only through teaching them, but praying for them. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Now we're all called to be disciple makers. And this is an important component of us being disciple makers. Leading others. Helping others grow in maturity. Stand fully assured in the will of God. We see this in 1 Timothy in Ephesians 6 that Paul calls uh, Timothy, young pastor, to prayer and intercession. And in Ephesians 6, he calls the saints to be prayerful, to pray in the Spirit, always with all prayer and supplication. Praying for all the saints. Um, to, 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 the, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is how we fight our battles, or rather, we invite God in to fight our battles. Right? We pray. We pray Holy Spirit-directed and energized prayers. Alright? Now, there's, there's a couple different times that Paul uses, that Paul uses this phrase, praying in the Spirit. One time in 1 Corinthians, he uses it as praying in tongues. Jude talks about praying in the Spirit, right? And in and, and, and this passage here, he talks about praying in the Spirit. Now, let me just highlight this. I don't think in Ephesians 6 and Jude, when he's talking about praying in the Spirit, that he's talking about praying in tongues. Sorry, this may seem like a rabbit trail. 
But it's one that I think is worth addressing here. Because if we're going to engage in spiritual battle, we need to be prayerful. And to pray in the Spirit, we don't have to pray in tongues. Otherwise, because Paul says that not everyone has the gift of tongues. Right? And so we can all, as the Christians who have the Spirit of God living inside of us, we can pray prayers that are energized and directed by the Spirit. We can offer up supplications, prayers, and intercessions, praying for others, praying for kings, praying for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay, I'm going to land the plane here with that. I'm gonna, I should probably just write an article on that, write something, send it out to the church. That's what I was planning to do, and I tried to squeeze it in there. Pardon me for that. And so let us be a people who pray. Amen? So let's do that now. Lord, thank you for the rescue that you have brought us through Christ. For the help that you have given us in your Son and through your Spirit. And I pray right now for brothers and sisters who are here struggling, discouraged, hurting, not free. I pray that you would break in that you would silence the enemy. That you would deliver your people from the evil one. That you would empower us. Empower us to do your will. To stand fully assured in your will. We need you. We need your help. We need your guidance, your wisdom. And we say, we affirm the words of Jesus that apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. You're the vine, we're the branch.